Welcome to the Pinelander Podcast, the official podcast of Pineland, broadcasting to you from an undisclosed location deep inside Pineland, where we discuss faith, family, finances, firearms, freedom, food, and everything else in between with those who believe in living free and living out the values that made this country free. Welcome to the Pineland Podcast. My name is Paul LaFaver. I'm here with my Ranger buddy, Mike Blackburn. Today is Friday, the 31st of March, 2023. And you know, I never get uh, tired of that intro. I love the uh, Revolutionary War sounds uh, and the, uh, the patriotic fervor of it. It uh, really gets my uh, nads pumping. Uh, <laughs> and you know, what also gets our nads pumping is uh, a lot of the snafus we're seeing out there uh, in the economy, you know, with uh, bank this, that, or other uh, going down, a lot of the debacles we, we are hearing about. And, uh, you know, despite what the president said, the president, he said that Americans can rest assured that our banking system is safe. Uh, but uh, I'm not sure if that's completely accurate. Uh, you know, today we have uh, back by popular demand, NC Scout, I want to welcome you today, NC Scout, for uh, maybe talking about this and anything else we, we come across. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be back. Yes, yes sir. Always, always, always great to have you. Always. So anyway, we've got uh, we got SVB Bank. Of course, that's oh. you know uh, that's the one that everybody uh, well, that's maybe the first one that kind of ouch that uh, popped up. But of course, now we're, we're learning that there's a lot of other banks that are. Coming to a neighborhood um, near you, in, in similar <laughs> in similar dire uh, circumstances. Um, so I thought it'd be helpful today um, because there's a lot of there's a lot of anxiety out there um, where people are trying to figure out, okay, what what am I what do I do with my money? Okay, we all need banking. We use banking for everything: pay our bills, pay our mortgages, uh, you know, pay payroll if you have you know employees that work for you. Um, where do I put my money that that is that where it's going to be safe, okay, so I can get my bills, feed my family, what have you? And today that's causing a lot of issues because people are trying to figure out, they're scratching their head, trying to figure out, um, you know, where is, where does safe exist? And, um, you know, we all remember the stories of back in the Great Depression, uh, you know, where people used to keep their money uh, in, you know, in jars, you know, buried out in the backyard or stuffed in between the mattress and the box springs. And uh, I remember growing up, uh, there was still quite a few um, older people. I mean, I was I was uh, school age, but uh, I remember neighbors in their 80s uh, that still didn't trust banks uh, just from what they, um, you know, recalled and remembered uh, from when they were growing up uh, during the Great Depression. So I thought what we may start out with is just sort of hitting some of the definitions, some of the nomenclature. So uh, at least we kind of we kind of know what we're talking about as far as how some of these terms that you may or may not be familiar with. Um, the first thing I want to talk about, of course, is money. Okay, we always we, we throw that term around a lot, and I think uh, it, a definition for money would be useful. So it's it's important to I think remember that. Up until about 1500 BC, uh, money was alive. 
okay? Uh, generally, we were talking about cattle or goats or things like that. So uh, th these were sort of the um, things that were used that had value that uh, you could uh, barter and trade with and, and uh and they had an intrinsic value of themselves, okay? Uh, later, of course, uh, we started getting gold coins. We started getting silver coins. Uh, we, we started getting things that were uh, distinguished from paper currency checks and drafts, okay? Just real, uh, real types of items that had sort of a store of value in them. Now, uh, today... Um, we use what's known as commonly referred to as Federal Reserve notes. Okay, we, we is currency. Now, currency is not money, uh, so I think a lot of people confuse the two. A currency is basically a money substitute. So, it's a good way to look at it is let's just say money is gold coins. Uh, well, instead of you, you know, walking around with a big pocket of gold coins, uh, which is quite heavy and uh, you know quite a bit of value. You could go and deposit your money into a into a local bank, and they would give you currency. They would give you sort of a receipt for that gold, and you could use that currency uh, and and give it to other people, and they could go and redeem uh, that for the gold or the silver that was back at the bank. So it's it's, it's sort of a convenience thing. Uh, you could carry the much lighter weight paper rather than the heavy. Money of value. Now today we use what's known as Federal Reserve notes. Okay, now these are not money, uh, even though we call it money. Uh, basically, a Federal Reserve note uh, today is a fiat currency. Okay, it's a it's a debt note that's basically backed by nothing. Okay, you may have heard uh, your grandparents or whatever uh, talking about um, gold certificates or um, on the bottom of the dollar, you may see some of these old dollars from way back uh, where it says, uh, you know, the, uh, you could redeem them, okay, for uh, silver or whatever when we had the silver certificates. Uh, you'll notice on, the, on, the, on, the, on our dollar bills today of the Federal Reserve notes, uh, none of that verbiage exists anymore, okay? So the Federal Reserve notes are issued by the Federal Reserve Bank, and that is a privately owned corporation. It is not a part of the government, and uh, the, the, it has shareholders. It's a corporation with shareholders, and, uh, and many of these shareholders are foreigners. They're not even American, so that's kind of just important to know. I think a lot of people think of the Federal Reserve Bank as, as a part of the government, and it is not. Um, the FRNs, the Federal Reserve Notes, are unsigned checks written on a closed account and are basically promissory notes uh, to pay the U.S. Treasury, okay? Notes to pay U.S. Treasuries. So the government issues out treasuries, and we exchange FRNs as a promissory note to pay those treasury bills. That's kind of how it works. It's sort of a debt-based system. It's a promise to pay the debt to the Federal Reserve Bank, to that private corporation. And if, if you're kind of listening now, you can kind of see 
kind of see the the crux of the problem that we're currently in right now. Okay, it's, it's it, may, it may you may be starting to think, ah, oh, okay, this is starting to make a little sense here because what we're dealing with is a lot of paper um, that is tied to a debt, and that's kind of important to understand. Now, the dollar is a measure of weight uh, defined by the Coinage Act, and it used to be one twentieth of an ounce of gold. Um, uh, back in 1934, that was devalued to one thirty-fifth of an ounce. Okay, but a dollar actually, uh, even though we call you know how many dollars do you have, a dollar is actually a a, a measure of weight, uh, as its correct definition. Now, wealth wealth is land, tools, materials, equipment, and anything that generates a profit, any kind of profit generating asset. So. A lot of times, you know, we'll, uh, we'll take our currency and we'll actually go purchase wealth, you know, things that we can actually make money with. Maybe it's real estate. Maybe you're going to uh, rent your house out. That's a, that's a generating, uh, that is an asset that generates profit. Uh, the other thing that you should be familiar with is a thing referred to as fractional reserve banking. Uh, fractional reserve banking is a system whereby a bank only has to retain 3% of deposits. So if you and I go down to our bank, and this is the problem that we're seeing now, if we go down to our local bank and we make a $1,000 deposit into our account, what that, what that does for that bank is it creates an instant credit of $33,333 for the bank because they are allowed to loan that much money off of that amount of money. Now, this is, you can kind of see right now that that's the problem, okay? Um, Really, the problem that we are having is a debt system with a fractional reserve banking system uh, that works off of generating even more and more debt and now we're starting to get a problem. That's why you hear on the news all the time. As long as you don't go down to the bank and withdraw your money, then your bank is fine. I, I want you to think about that a minute. As long as you don't go and get your own money, the bank will be fine. Well, of course it will be, okay? <laughs> because, because they only have 3% of what you gave them anyway. Now, if everybody goes and takes out their 100%, they're, they're in a big problem. They have a big problem, okay? Because... They, that's why you, they run into a liquidity problem, okay? Because they have to go, they have to go print more money, okay? More debt instruments, uh, not not actually true money. So uh, the other thing to uh, keep in mind is it, it is not possible to pay off the national debt with with Federal Reserve notes. I think you need to understand that. So when we talk about the national debt, and I'm not sure where it's at now. It, a lot. Uh, thirty trillion. I mean, whatever the number is, let's just yeah. say, let's just say it's thirty trillion. Well, in somebody's mind, you would think, well, can't they just print off thirty trillion dollars, okay, and and just go pay that off? Well, no, you can't, because I've already told you that a Federal Reserve note is not money. It is a debt instrument, and you cannot pay off a debt with a debt note. Okay, basically what FRNs do is they just transfer debt around. It doesn't actually pay off the debt. Uh, it would take money to actually pay off 
the national debt. Now, I've heard uh, some people talk about, well, Anwar, okay? If we open up Anwar, there may be enough oil up in Anwar alone to pay off the national debt. So some people say, hey, this is not a big deal. We still have enough uh, assets and, uh, you know, uh, things that are actually worth something that we could easily pay off uh, the national debt. And that could very well be, but not continuing in the same path that we are currently on. And with that, I want to go ahead and stop talking and bring in C. Scout because he's kind of our, uh, we, you know, we brought, we brought you in for a reason. Um, you know, you've been looking at this too, and uh, you've had some interesting conversations with folks that are in the, in the you know, business, in the banking business. And, and what are they telling you? Well, uh, first of all, just as a lead-in, you're you're exactly right, uh, top to bottom. And that's a a sober analysis that people really need to take to heart. And the biggest one is Jefferson, uh, his quotes, Thomas Jefferson's quotes going into uh, the the pre-Constitution era and then just after the Constitution. Uh, with the, the whole conversation regarding federalism, anti-federalism, and much of it had to do with the establishment of central banking, uh, which would be an argument that he'd end up losing, um, unfortunately. And I think that that's why among the left, with it, uh, regard to the founding fathers, that Hamilton is much more well-regarded, uh, at least in, in uh, American terms with the American left. And of course, you know, we know this from the, uh, the, the Broadway musical and, and so on and so forth. And, and a lot of the revisionist history that's out there, but Hamilton brought us centralized banking to the United States. And that that's a point that cannot be overlooked. And the federal reserve being a private corporation as shareholders that has uh, heavy foreign investment in it as well. Um, that is a child of that system. And, uh, you know, the, the creature from Jekyll Island is uh, another very good reference on this. And, and 100% of it is true. Uh, a lot of these things, both uh, written from the, the left wing and the right wing perspective uh, throughout history regarding central banking, uh, you know, a lot of it's been dismissed as uh, conspiracy theory or tinfoil hat or not feasible. But now we, we begin to revisit a lot of the points that were made uh, in, in those pieces, and we see that they were absolutely correct. Um, for me, I have a lot of clientele who are usually fairly wealthy um, and are usually at a uh, stable station in life of a professional class and have assets that that they want to protect or uh, in some cases are in the asset protection business uh, with regards to finances. And so I get kind of the the thousand foot view of what they're looking at um, and in some cases, what they see is causal flat factors for a lot of this. And they're like-minded individuals, um, you know, obviously very pro-liberty, um, you know, very, very dedicated to their own training and, um, you know, staying engaged with, with as, as much of this in, in the community as possible. And so, um, you know, 
several of them work in the banking industry. And I have a, a few close friends who have been regular clients of mine who uh, are executives in uh, the banking industry in smaller banks. And that is an important point of view going forward in this conversation because that is the fundamental question right now. Um, you know, we've probably all heard the pundits. A, a lot's been going on the past seven days with, uh, you know, the, the whole uh, Silicon Valley Bank implosion and the resulting uh, fallout with all of that. And the question that a lot of people have is what's going to happen to my smaller local banks? Because if, if you're like me, you would rather deal with uh, the bank that, that you can walk in, you can talk to the bank president, or at least someone who is in a managerial capacity that's close to the hierarchy of that bank. And you can at least get a feel for, you know, is this a well-run place of business? Do they actually care about their customers? How long have they been in operation? Um, you, you can get a more direct feel for all that versus Bank of America or Wells Fargo or uh, Chase Bank or JP Morgan or, or, or any of these, right? And, you know, the conversation keeps coming up just like it did in 2008 about too big to fail, right? These, these giant banks are too big to fail. They're too big to fail. We're going to bail these out, right? And that really leaves the fundamental question of smaller banks. And it was the smaller banks in the Great Depression that actually suffered the most. And that was the reason that the FDIC was created was a, a uh, promissory act and a surety created by the United States government saying that the banking system is safe and that you, you are safe to invest your money in any declared bank in the United States, right? Except that the best of intentions always paved the way to hell. And we didn't really update that. And we never really thought since the Great Depression era, which, you know, some historians and some economists say we never truly got out of uh, because we just continued to float that war debt along uh, after the World War II era was, was concluded. But the greater point here is that the United States government wants you to believe that the banking industry in totes is safe. And the, the short answer to that is, is that no, it's not. Um, you know, if, if we lived in a purely capitalist society, right, and, and everything was perfect and, and it was a perfect world, banks would come and go all the time. They would fail. They would be allowed to fail because not every business is run properly. Not every business is run correctly. And businesses that have bad practices need to go away is this is a type of, of natural selection right but we in this uh slow slide towards socialization and centralization and, and that second statement is very very important here of banking control we we really given way to uh not allowing the bad sectors of our own economy to go by the wayside and in the worst cases, we've actually incentivized that failure. 
you know, SVB going under should be allowed to go under because it, it needs to be understood that, first of all, the elephant in the room is, is that the people that stood to lose the most from SVB are the same pink and blue haired uh, people on the left that absolutely despise us, that fund the Democrat machine, that want socialism in, in America. These quote unquote venture capitalists, venture startup companies in the tech sector. That's exactly what they do. Um, the other thing is, is that just because you're a venture capitalist, quote unquote, that means that this entails a high amount of risk, right? There's a lot of risk that is involved here. And when your risk, which is overwritten uh, through the interest rate, if you have a high risk loan that you're granting to someone, you increase that interest rate. It's just like, uh, you know, at Fort Bragg, if we can still call it Fort Bragg, uh, if, if they'll let us. For a little you know, while when, longer, when, yeah. Joe, <laughs> when When Joe is at Fort Bragg, and, you know, we had to, I'm sure you guys did too, it, it, you know, I had to write counseling statements. Hey, don't go buy a car from these dealerships because they're going to, they're trying to scalp loans on you. They're, the car is overpriced and you can't afford a 30% interest rate, right? But that's because they know that those are high risk loans. It's the same with every other kind of loan, right? And SVB operated on this principle that we're just going to give money to anybody who says they're a startup in the tech industry and they end up losing their money. Well, now what they want is for us to subsidize those losses. The risk. They say that's okay. They want the that, risk subsidized. Yeah. Exactly. They need to be responsible for their own losses and they need to be accountable for that. For their employees, hey, that, that's the risk that you take. I have employees too. And if, if I make bad personal decisions and I make bad decisions for my business and my business goes under, then they're the ones that have to suffer with that along with myself included, right? So SVB going under and, and the FDIC wants us to subsidize that. Uh, the Federal Depository Insurance Corporation, which is run by the United States government. It's a um, semi-public enterprise, which the banking industry pays a certain amount of money into to insure their own bank accounts in case of bank failure. That was the way that this whole system was set up. But we've gotten so far away from that because we've gotten into this comfort zone where you know everything is... Uh, everything's going to be fine and we have the too big to fail banks and we have Bank of America that took on the bad assets of Merrill Lynch and we have Wells Fargo that was the center of the subprime lending uh, problems and, and uh, one of the causal factors of the 2008 meltdown. We have the repeal of Glass-Steagall which occurred in the Clinton administration which gave way to uh, the ability for these, these banks that, to buy up the bad brokerage houses on Wall Street, and this was a way for them to leverage their own debt, right? And so there's a lot of intersecting factors that we never actually resolve economically that, that have resurfaced over and over again, and we continue to just kick the can down the road. This has been made much more problematic by the triple P loans, the COVID money. And of course, the, the Trump administration began this. Uh, this was a program that was perpetuated 
further by the Biden administration. And this is really what brought us to today. Now, there were a lot of uh, financial guys in uh, the, the alternative media out there that, you know, are frequently featured on Zero Hedge. Uh, one of them is Jim Quinn, who uh, runs the burning platform that I occasionally write pieces for. And uh, he writes uh, and, and contributes to American Partisan as well. And he, he is a very well-regarded financial advisor that has been featured on Zero Hedge continuously. Um, really, really intelligent guy. And Triple P Loans, he was saying two years ago that when the velocity factor of this money, right, that is going into the economy, literally money for nothing, we're paying each person in America, you know, a thousand dollars, and in some cases much more, to sit at home, to not do anything. And it was at least intended by, uh, you know, we'll be kind and call them socialists in our own government, Keynesian economists, right? The the uh, bottom up economists, or, or rather the top down uh, management model, that. We're going to give you money. You'll sit at home, but you'll eventually return to the labor force. And that's not the case. That hasn't been the case. That's why we see material shortages. That's why we see manufacturing shortages. That's why we're seeing delays in shipping times. That's why we're seeing help wanted signs everywhere. That's why we're seeing people saying, hey, I'm not coming back to work if you don't pay me at least $15 an hour. Because everything is being government subsidized. And so the velocity factor of the money that was injected into the American economy is now finally catching up with us. This is intersecting with another problem, the bond market. So banks make money off of interest that is sold as part of loans. Um, the uh, mortgage uh, industry is probably best known for this because they have uh, fixed interest rates. If, if you have a, a fairly secure loan, you're going to have a fixed interest rate. If you're a more risky loan, you're going to qualify for a variable interest rate, which, which is something you never want when you're buying a home. But people aren't buying as many homes now. And so banks made their money off of that. But the other way that they make their money is off of the bond market. And so buying and selling bonds, corporate bonds, governmental bonds, bank bonds. This is how they make their money. And the bond market has been in a lot of trouble for some time now. This is the thing that a lot of people don't really want to talk about. A lot of bankers don't want to address this. And the quote unquote, too big to fail banks are the ones who are beginning to suffer the worst from this. Right? So this is beginning to catch up. FTX, the FTX scandal with uh, Sam Brinkman fried and, uh, you know, he had his uh, his, his whole operation that hinged on Bitcoin, and there were a lot of Democrats that were tied up in that. Um, there were some professional athletes who were tied up in that as well, most notably uh, Tom Brady. You can't have that much money disappear from the overnight collapse of a brokerage house and not expect a serious fallout effect. And it's a bit of a delayed fallout effect, but SVB was heavily tied up in FTX, right? And so FTX collapses. The bond market is in trouble. SVB wasn't able to cover their bad loans, stuff that, that uh, would 
so many people in the tech industry had invested in FTX and it's all now beginning to catch up. The problem is, is that SVB had sold loans and bought bonds from many other companies in California, Utah, Nevada, Idaho even, Oregon, and Washington. They have a regional banking system. In California, this is something that, that won't necessarily make the news because it's, it's politically unpopular to talk about it in certain circles. But California repealed the banking laws that they have on their own system, their own banking regulations that would have prevented this. They don't want to talk about this because they're positioning Gavin Newsom to run for president. They don't want to discuss these things. But this is exactly what happened. We already, this is to absolve Republicans, by the way, we already had a storm, a very serious one that was brewing, but they went and made it worse. They went and made it substantially worse. It really just kicked yeah. the can down the road. I mean, uh, this this thing, some people could say the fix to 2008 uh, was is leading us directly to where we're at today in 2023. Exactly. That's exactly right. Because we never got away from the debt model that you pointed out as a lead into the show. You, you never you never fix the problem if you don't first address what caused the problem and debt, the model of debt, because there is a lot of money to be made off of debt. Uh, if you're in the banking industry, and this, this is how they make their money. And with that said, a lot of Americans never figured out that you need to get away from credit cards. Credit cards are going to be the next thing that goes, because with COVID, um, the average credit card debt in the American household went up significantly. There's a wide variety of reports out there Um you know, U.S. Consumer News Reports puts out one number. Um, the CBO puts out another number. But the, the average is high. It is is uh, the, the average credit card debt of each American household per capita is fairly high. And at worst, we have families that are out there that are completely living off credit cards to get from one paycheck to the next. See, my, this is a very dangerous thing. I think. I think the uh, now you tell me if I'm I'm wrong here, but this is the way I'm kind of looking at this entire banking industry. When I was 16 years old, uh, I went down to my local uh, bank. Uh, I lived in a small little town, Leeton, Missouri. Okay, probably population 500 or something. Um, went down to the the. Uh, the Bank of Leeton, and uh, everyone knew the bank president. Everyone knew who worked there. Um, I opened up a checking account with some some money that I had made. And uh, the bank president himself sat down with me and helped me open the bank account. And then, of course, gave me a lecture on uh, being responsible. And how he decided to run his bank was completely up to um, his uh, discretion, uh, best practices, okay? Uh, today, these small local regional banks uh, are not uh, really set up like this anymore. And like you said, if my local bank of uh, Leeton, where I started out at 16 years old, if that bank president 
uh, was doing something unscrupulous, uh, he wasn't going to last long. But uh, that was something that he had a vested interest in because he was a part of the community. He knew people in the community, and you know he felt uh, you know accountable to the community to do the right thing with with uh, the deposits. Today, um, everything's getting pushed to the the big boys. J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, Citigroup, Wells Fargo, U.S. Bank Corp. I mean, you can go on and on. Um, And they're really being controlled and uh, directed by the Federal Reserve System. So you almost, it's you know, you're not safe at the regional banks. I think I I heard uh, Janet Yellen in an exchange with uh, uh, Senator Lankford uh, was talking about the fact that uh, when she, when when he was asking her, you know, who gets bailed out, who doesn't, uh, it was almost kind of like this. Well, we kind of just sit around the room and and we discuss it, and and I make a phone call to the White House, and you know, if if the bank, if we feel the bank is worthy, you know, we'll bail them out. Well, you know that the Bank of Leeton is not going to be a priority for the Federal Reserve. They're going to be right. worrying about their big, the big boys, and that's really, right. you know, what that's really what she told uh, Senator Lankford was, if you're in a small bank, you're just on your own. Right. So, so what does the guy do? What does the guy do now? So, the the thing that doesn't often get discussed, and um, you know, I, I'll I'll address that for sure, um, is there is a strategy going on by the Federal Reserve to bring in central bank digital currency or CBDC. Uh, this is part of the Great Reset. It's a stated goal. This isn't, you know, tinfoil hat, Alex Jones, you know, kind of off in, in, you know, existing in, in the more uh, conspiratorial spaces. This is real. This is by their own words. This is what they want because they have total control when they do that. And, and, you know, the, the, uh, the great reset is literally ushering this in when they say you'll own nothing and be happy. They have to get rid of the regional banks. Fortunately, there is a system though, and there's a strategy of pushback against this, um, which doesn't often get talked about outside of, uh, banking circles. And I asked a close friend of mine who's a, a banking executive, and, and he's had many classes with me, um, extremely, extremely squared away guy um, and, and very, very savvy when it comes to finances. And uh, we had a conversation once uh, after class not that long ago where we were talking about ESGs and DEI and how um, you know the, the small banking industry is trying to push back against that. And uh, we, we had that conversation again. We revisited that in the last conversation I had with him. And it's hinged on the Intrify system. So this was something that I had never heard of before until talking to him. And the Intrify system is essentially a means that banks insure one another over a region. So when you have a network of smaller banks, they insure one another and this is a way that they insure themselves against large-scale bank takeovers. So let's say if uh, Bank of America 
which is not financially sound. Bank of America is is not uh, of all the the large banks. Bank of America is probably the weakest. If Bank of America came in and said, um, say, you know, we'll make up a fictitious bank and we'll just say that the Bank of Central North Carolina. And they said, hey, we're going to take this bank over. We're going to buy it all out. If the Intrify system looked into their call reports through the FDIC, if, if those adherents to the Intrify system did that and said, you know, this seems like a bad idea, we're, we're not going for it. They could put the brakes on. They, they could, th this is how bank buyouts actually begin, is they look at the call reports and say, you know, can, can we do this? Can we not do this? Are we going to work with this bank? Are we not going to work with this bank? And this was a way internally that banks were able to, uh, at the small scale level, compete with the larger banks. And they could offer services to their clientele that some of the larger banks maybe wouldn't have an incentive to do because they don't necessarily have to uh, for, for uh, lack of putting it a better way. And so I think that when it comes to uh, big business and when it comes to the banking industry, that these the local banks are going to utilize this to try and fight back against the larger corporate takeovers. Now, will it work? I don't know. Uh, because I'm not well-versed enough personally to know the ins and outs of that. But I can tell you this, that there is a concerted effort to push back. A lot of these bankers at, at the local level, they live for their clientele because they are part and parcel of the communities of their clientele, and they stand the most to lose. Yeah, we all yeah we all love our our local regional banks. I mean, there's a, there's just a huge difference going into the lobby of one of uh, you know the small uh, community bank and uh, you know going into the uh, uh, you know Bank of America, for instance. Okay, I mean there's a, there's a huge difference in how you're treated and everything else. There's there's sort of a corporate mentality in those big in those big banks. They really don't care anything about you. They don't care about what your issues are. You know. And talking to anybody that can make a decision is almost impossible. Now, what I will say is that the because for every move, there's a counter move. And when the small local banks try to push back against uh, CBDC, the way that the Fed would push back against them is simply raising interest rates. Because it's been, right. it's been widely acknowledged that, that the interest rates have been way too low for too long. They have uh, doled out cheap money, and the the banks that can absorb the losses of a higher interest rate are the two big to fail banks. That's right. It would be a backdoor way of bailing them out based on their own liquidity, because just by their size, they can keep much more liquidity on hand. The smaller banks wouldn't necessarily be able to do that, and they would begin to fail. And they would begin to be put in a position where the Fed could step in and go to Congress and say, look, what we'll do is we'll give a tax incentive to the large banks to buy up the smaller banks, which are beginning to fail. We may very well see that. I pray that we don't, but that would be the strategy by which they would use. Rather than go in uh, a full-scale socialist model of nationalizing the banking industry, I don't see that happening. 
because the corporate interests at the very top, at the very uh, most elite level, they don't want to see the banks necessarily get nationalized because that would end up hurting them. Uh, that, that would hurt everybody, but that would hurt them. That would also hurt the United States government. Instead, they want their competitors at, at the local most levels to be put out of business. You know, what I did, because I, I had a substantial number of assets in other banks that were uh, larger banks, and I did that as a hedge against this very thing. I started paying attention to this stuff in 2008. I had deployment money, uh, you know, back when you uh, had year on, year off cycles where, you, you know, you, you're gone for a year, you come back for a year, right. and you come back with a big bank account. And I was putting money in different banks some big, some small, as a hedge in case, you know, because we, not, we not, that not we sticking not sticking all your eggs in just one basket. You're kind of spreading right. it around. Right, right. We, we knew at some point there was going to be a 2008, leading up to 2008. It, that was, you know, and, and I've been a follower of Ron Paul for a very long time. Uh, you know, long before I was in the army, paid attention to to a lot of his talking points, and um, you know, paid attention to this stuff and, and saw the writing on the wall. But, but in later years, in the past decade, I began to pay attention to what the big what the big banks were really doing, and some of these toxic practices. I took all of my money out and put it all in smaller banks in local banks as a means of, you know, I, I, not that I have a whole lot, but I'm doing my part in saying, Hey, I'm going to support my local economy. And that bolsters the bargaining power of my local bank against big bank takeover. Okay. So, so there's, so that's a, that's a good strategy right there. Uh, Resist the uh, large, uh, you know, two big to fail banks, uh, bank locally, and um, as a hedge against uh, an SVB, if you will, uh, have a couple of different smaller local banks. And a lot of times, for for those uh, folks out there that may have like a small business, let's say you're, you know, you have a small business on the side. Uh, you know, they always tell you anyway. It's best to have a separate account set up for your business anyway. So. You know, a lot of times this is not going to be even much of a headache for you because you, you maybe already have um, one or two accounts anyway going. Right, right. That's that's my first strategy is diversification at the local most level. The second thing that I do, and, and I'm not, I want to make something very clear. I'm not giving financial advice because I am hardly a financial advisor. I'm just a guy who runs a business. Hey man, we're just a, we're just a bunch of pinelanders here trying to freaking exactly. keep hey keep yeah. whatever view you know what what little currency we have we just want to hold on to it okay right right that I want to lose my uh, my don get my don in touch that's right yeah don't don't need to be <laughs> losing your don man I I gotta give that disclaimer but I what I can do is tell you what I do yeah. That's what we want to know. We want to know what 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 little guys like you and me and Paul are doing, yeah. you know, because so, that's that's I mean, the majority of us are in this pool. I take ten percent of my income, ish, roughly ten percent. Sometimes a little more if I can afford it. Sometimes a little bit less, just depends. And I put it in precious metals. That's and, and 
you know, as a strategy of precious metals. So there's two ways to look at it. When we talk about precious metals, um, I'm exclusively talking about gold and silver, uh, platinum, palladium, uh, and you know, so on and so forth. I kind of stay away from those because there's there's too much fluctuation in that market. Um, platinum, it, I think, is is seriously overvalued. Palladium as well. Um, and the other thing is, is that they can be confused for silver frequently for, for somebody with an untrained eye. Um, if they see a, a platinum silver eagle, for example, they may confuse it for a, a silver silver eagle. And um, uh, the American eagle, rather, let me be specific, silver eagle. But, a, but a, an American eagle, they make them with platinum. Uh, several minages out there, private mints, make that design in platinum and it looks like silver if you didn't know what you were looking at so i stick to gold and silver so that there's no confusion out there and um he, here's how i do it. this is my investment strategy in that so we buy we buy precious metals really for three reasons all right the first is to have raw bullion right we have raw bullion and you know all the the gold commercials and whatever they say it's a, a hedge against inflation and everything. Well, let me explain how that works. So gold today is worth, uh, you know, by the time this, this episode airs, you know, who knows, but as of today, it's worth a little over $1,900, right? And silver is going for right around $21 an ounce. And that, that, those prices are per ounce, right? But that doesn't mean that six months from now, a year from now, um, it's going to be worth substantially more. We don't know, right? We're not aware of what, what it's going to be worth later down the road. So we know what it is worth today. And since we are realistically at a 30% inflation rate, our, our, our money is devaluing at a rate of 30%. And if you go to the grocery store, you see that. So if we invest our currency, which is losing 30% of its value, on a regular basis, then we will be able to put our money into something that is not just going to gain value, but it will maintain its value against the U.S. dollar there's, going forward. Okay, that's a way to protect there's, there's another way to look at this, which I think we need to remind everybody. So basically what you're doing is you're taking a Federal Reserve note, okay, which is a debt note, and you're exchanging it for money, real money. And that right. and that's 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 key. I want because you got to understand that, that debt that debt note is going to continue to depreciate. It's going to continue to be devalued. Whereas your money, okay, the gold bullion or whatever silver bullion, whichever you know, these things are historically uh, considered money for you know millennia, uh, they're not going anywhere. Um, you're going to maintain your value in that in, in that money in that form of money. So that's, that's really smart for a couple of reasons. Number one, um, the other thing you have to understand is that the the price of gold, I, I don't really like um, using that because you got to understand you're basically saying how many FRNs, how many Federal Reserve notes uh, are do you have to give up in order to get an ounce of gold? Um, right. And that's really not the way to look at it. Um you know, an ounce of gold is worth what an ounce of gold is worth, regardless of when. 
the yep. the debt notes are going to fluctuate greatly. So people talk about things becoming more expensive. In, in reality, they probably aren't. It's just that your debt note is becoming less and less valuable. So it takes much more of them. Right. That's exactly right. So the, the other two ways that people invest in precious metals is, or and reasons for that, is buying rare and antique coins, which have a numismatic value on them, as well as a uh, precious metal value to it based on its weight. This is the worst way to invest in precious metals. Um, yeah, I, so I steer people away from that generally. Buying rare coins is is good really for – the only reasons I can think of off the top like, of my head – It's like head dealing is, in art. Right, right. Yeah. It, it's, it, it is a liquid asset because you can take rare coins in any coin shop, and the dealer there is going to generally recognize what it is and, and its purity versus, um, you know, random – just raw bullion from say like sunshine net, for example, uh, who I deal with fairly regularly. So you can, um, yeah. So you can, what you're saying is like, you can look at a Kruger in, uh, you can look at an American Eagle. Uh, you can look at a Canadian maple leaf. Um, even right. though, you know, each of these come in one ounce coins, um, uh, they're going to have a different value. Um, right. I, I generally look for, and you probably do the same thing, I generally look for a coin that's easily recognizable and um, it's not going to be something that someone's going to scratch their head and wonder what it is. Um, right. But I try to get a coin that is less expensive. Uh, you're going to pay a little more for an Eagle. Uh, you probably pay a little more for a Krugerrand. But uh, generally speaking, a Canadian maple is going to cost you a little less. Right. Well, and, and I'll say on, on the Krugerrands, I just bought, a large amount of Cougarants because right now they are actually the lowest in value of any, the, the current production ones. And I'm not sure why this is, but they, they are the, the uh, lowest in cost on the market right now in, in comparison to the spot price, which but, is the price. Yeah, but you're absolutely price. right. Shop around an ounce of gold yep. is not necessarily an ounce of gold. Right. Yeah, that's right. And, the same is true for silver. And, um, you know, it, it's having a, a large number of silver, having a, a, a large amount of silver, rather, having a, a large amount of gold, or, or as much as you can afford. And people will look at the spot price and say, well, you know, it's, these are, these are kind of expensive, and I don't know if I can justify it. And they really don't want to part ways with the uh, security of the liquidity of their cash. And a lot of people who are just getting into investing in precious metals think like that. Um, the thing is, is that precious metals, it, it, at least for me, are liquid assets. Um, they are divisible assets, and they, they are fairly easy to use. There's a lot of places that recognize precious metals as money, as valid money, a lot more places than, than most people would care to realize in their day-to-day -day lives. Um, it all starts with a question. Now, the, the last thing, and this, this is a product that, that uh, listeners may or may not be aware of, but I think that it is probably the best thing to hit the precious metals market in, in maybe ever, and it's a uh, product of modern manufacturing technology. And I, I want to state very clearly, I have absolutely no financial interest or connection with them. 
I did, however, do a podcast with the owner of this company, and that's Goldback. Um, and the owner and CEO of the company came on to my podcast, did just over an hour. We discussed uh, monetary theory and you know th this, this product, why he created this product. And uh, it is one that I use regularly and allow people to pay me for training in. Uh, as it, and it, that is the gold back. And the gold, what a gold back is, is a fractional amount of gold that is pressed out into a bill. And so, uh, one gold back is one one thousandth of an ounce of gold. To me, that resolves the fundamental question that a lot of people have. Actually, two questions that a lot of people have regarding gold specifically. First is you know, how do I use one ounce of gold for a day-to-day -day transaction? Yeah, it's That's, a little, it's a little much. Yeah, you're not going is. out, you're not going out to eat with your, you know, your $1,900 gold piece. No, no. But with gold backs, you can actually have fractional gold. And this, this is real gold. It is fractional gold that is in small amounts that is easy to carry. You can carry it in any kind of wallet. Um, I think that this is one of the most brilliant things to uh, hit the market of precious metals, maybe in forever. Um, it, 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 and, and again, it, it's a uh, product of modern manufacturing. It is almost impossible to uh, uh, counterfeit these things because there's safeguards. There's a QR code that's going into the design of it starting next year. Very much like how, um, you know, American money, our bills have certain safeguards that are superimposed on them. These do too. Um, they're, they're genuine. And there is a small spot price increase over um, other forms of gold when, when you're buying it. But, but you can buy a small amount of gold. This is affordable to literally anybody out there. This is also really good when we talk about maybe we're buying things that we don't necessarily want Uncle Sam knowing that we're buying in all cases, right? We want to we maintain a certain level of privacy in our day-to-day -day lives, a certain level of security. Um, you know, maybe we want to pay people under the table. And cash right now is the, the way traditionally we've been doing that. Of but course, the Federal Reserve they want to get rid of that. Armed government. That's right. They're saying that there's a war on cash. They want yep. us to go to a cashless society. I think that goldbacks is a very viable alternative to the cash system. Do I think that it's going to replace it? No. Uh, no, I don't, I don't think that it will do that. But it is at least a way to answer it and to provide an alternative to it. Um, the state of Utah, state of Wyoming, Nevada, New Hampshire, and... Um, uh, South Dakota, I understand that South Dakota is going to be the next one to have their own uh, goldback system where they accept goldback in lieu of or, or as a parallel currency to the U.S. dollar. And uh, th that's a very, very good thing to see. And I think this is an awesome product. I invest in it personally. Um, I use it, uh, you know, and, and people have a... a uh, if they would rather pay for a class or would rather pay for uh, some of the goods that, that I have for sale, 
utilizing gold backs or any other precious metal, I absolutely allow them to do so. I, uh, I, I see sort of two systems um, being created simultaneously. Uh, obviously, there's going to be the uh, Federal Reserve banking system, whatever that's going to entail, whether it be the CB, uh, centralized bank digital currencies, or continuing with the uh, Federal Reserve notes. But I also see what you're talking about, which is um, this sort of parallel uh, community-based economy uh, that's probably going to be uh, very local people that you know, people that you trust. Uh, that they're going to be required. They're going to be demanding real money, uh, not not the debt uh, instrument. Mm. Uh, so I think you're going to almost have to have uh, two systems going. I think you're going to have a system where you know whereby you pay your mortgage to the big bank, okay, through the Federal Reserve uh, system. Uh, but at the same time, you know, you walk out your front door and you have your gold backs or whatever system that you're using. Uh, and you're having you're conducting local commerce within your community, utilizing real money. And um, I, I also think people need to uh, start developing this second uh, community-based real money system, real economy, and getting familiar with it, just kind of understanding the difference between it and the other uh, uh, present economy that we're all used to, uh, utilizing uh, the Federal Reserve notes. Um, and trying to get as much of their assets as they possibly can into a real system and uh, investing in things that actually provide you wealth. It might not be the uh, BMW, okay? It might be a way for you to make money, you know, maybe uh, a hobby that you have, something that you enjoy doing. Maybe you need to turn that into a business, figure out how to monetize it, uh, figuring out other ways where you can bring in uh, real value to your home and real wealth uh, so you don't go down with the FRN ship. Uh, I, I do believe this. I think we're starting to see the Federal Reserve uh, system uh, starting to implode upon itself. What, what, what do you what do you think about that? Well, I think so. Um, I, I, I absolutely agree with the statement that the Federal Reserve System is beginning to implode on itself and, you know, they are in trouble and they're beginning to recognize that. But you can't be in the level of debt that they're in. And a lot of that debt is hinged upon the full faith and credit of the United States government. Well, the problem that we have with all that is is that the United States government's been doing a really good job of making enemies of former allies that we require to be friendly to us going forward, uh, like Saudi Arabia, for example. And so when we look at, at some of the headlines coming out today of Saudi Arabia now in talks with Iran, and they're agreeing to a ceasefire in Yemen, this is huge. And Iran is coming to the table and saying, we're going to stop arming the Houthi rebels tentatively. Now, we'll see if they, that they actually hold true to that. I don't think that they will. But the fact that they are at least at the table with one another, and that deal was not brokered by the United States. That deal was brokered by the Chinese. This it, it and and that gives way to BRICS, 
BRICS, the, the BRICS economic system, which a lot of people who are very intelligent and know what they're talking about when it comes to world finance. However, there are, those same people have been dismissive of the danger that BRICS poses to the Brenton Woods banking system, to uh, the Federal Reserve, and to the hegemony of the U.S. dollar as a world reserve currency. And when you have the Saudi Arabians, because Saudi Aramco is a big part of why the U.S. dollar is the world's reserve currency. When you take that into account that they are approaching their most hated enemy in the entire world, ideologically, Iranians, and saying, hey, you know what, we're going we're, we're gonna to kind of cool the rhetoric down. You guys cool the rhetoric down and we're willing to come to the bargaining table. And the United States is not the ones who are responsible for that make, that happening. We're in a lot of trouble. That's, that's something that people really need to look at soberly and say, hey, what in the world is going on here? Because if these two who absolutely hate each other, Sunnis and Shias absolutely hate one another on a very visceral level. And when when they're willing to come to the table outside of the, the uh, influence of the United States, we have to sit back. Our policymakers need to sit back and say, wait, what are we doing wrong here? And you need to recognize that this is putting the United States, our, our economy, our foreign policy, everything in a serious amount of jeopardy. And so people really need to be paying attention to this stuff closely and get ready because – I think that, that if if such a day comes, and there are certainly powers in the world that want this to be, the Russians want it to happen, the Chinese want it to happen, it's a stated goal of BRICS, uh, the BRICS economic system, to destabilize the U.S. dollar. They don't want to just create a parallel currency. They want the U.S. dollar gone. They want, because they, they understand that our economy is the source of our power as a nation, and they're working very diligently to get rid of it. So it's not even going to matter at that point if these banks are too big to fail, quote unquote, whether they are, whether they aren't. That one is going to hit everybody when that happens. And, and when it does, we're going to begin to look like Venezuela very, very quickly mm -hmm. because everything is leveraged around debt. And to be fair, according to some out there, and they're not wrong, who are uh, talking about credit card debt and the levels of credit card debt that we have, that may happen if the credit card debt bubble pops. And there are some people that are, that are speculating that it will, that it could happen potentially very soon. Um, we'll see. I'm not experienced enough necessarily to, to comment on that, but I can just tell you what they're saying. They think that it will. And um, that all of these things, it, not to be a doomsayer, but all of these things are pointing out that people really need to be taking their, their finances much more seriously. And you need to have a sane amount invested in tangibles, a sane amount invested in ammunition. You know, don't, don't go crazy with it. You know, you, you don't necessarily need a, an entire ASP at your place. Cause that, that would be kind of, kind of crazy. Uh, maybe, maybe not. Um, but definitely maybe have a, a few more serviceable firearms. 
maybe buy some some enablers that, that you need, maybe some radio equipment, uh, night vision for sure. Uh, I, I don't think that there's any reason that anybody, any armed American out there should not have a good set of night vision, uh, an IR laser, and get the training to use it. Um, you know, there's there's so many great trainers out there. I, I've told many people this uh, over the past 12 months and, and really longer, but I've been saying it over and over again. The United States has never had a time where we had so many well-seasoned combat vets who are offering great training to Americans. And, and we, we've never had that before in history where there's so many people that are doing that. I've got trainers just here in North Carolina that are reaching out to me on a fairly regular uh, basis saying, hey, you know, let's, let's get together. Let's work on some stuff. And so there, there's so many good trainers at the local most level. People don't have to necessarily travel half the country away to get solid training on those fundamentals. And, and that money, the money that you have in your account is not doing you any good if you don't have the means to protect it, you don't have a strategy to protect it, you're not doing anything to, to take care of yourself, right? You can't eat the money. You know, you, you, you need to be putting away, uh, you know, the, the entire strategy of putting away a certain amount of food, putting away a certain amount of uh, means to protect it, getting the training, precious metals as a parallel currency, the parallel economy aspect of it. These are all things that are going to protect you, and I promise they are going to pay off. It's not something that I'm telling you to do just, you know, as, as a uh, tinfoil hat or anything like that. This is what I do. This is how I live. This is what I've been doing for a long period of time. And um, because, you know, I saw the writing on the wall a long time ago. And just like you, you, you talked about coming into this was a lot of uh, a, a lot of the, the, the greatest generation, the uh, depression generation, they didn't trust the banking system. You know, and I grew up paying very careful attention to watching what my grandparents did and said, you know, that, that's pretty smart. There's a certain amount of money you, you should keep in a bank, but you need to protect yourself as well. That's fantastic. Uh, just I've been quiet the uh, majority of the time, but just kind of taking it in and soaking it in. And I, what I'm hearing is uh, it's a call uh, for economic sovereignty. It's a wake-up call to kind of see what's going on. And uh, so you can just put this in your tool bag. Uh, just another skill set to, to, you know, for somebody like me, I'm not really uh, monetarily inclined, as my friends know. I'm more like a spendthrift. But, yeah, definitely uh, I've been taking this in. I appreciate uh, the amount of thought you put into that. Hey, hey, NC Scout, uh, before we uh, you know, close her down today, uh, how do people reach you? How do people get in contact with you and, and all the great training that you got uh, offered? So they can follow the site, uh, AmericanPartisan.org, which is a daily news aggregator. There's original content up there as well. Brushbeater.org, which is my original site. Radio Contra, which is uh, my podcast. And uh, just a lot of great interviews. Just had a, another interview with a, a private intelligence professional that we uh, did yesterday that went out this morning. You can follow me on Twitter as well. Uh, my uh, handle is NC Scout, and that is at Brushbeater. And um, got uh, 
couple of books out there now have uh, The Gorilla's Guide to the Baofeng Radio, which is a bestseller on Amazon. I also have The Gorilla Dispatch Volume 1, which is a collection of articles that I've written uh, over the years, going back to 2015, as well as a number of articles from my other contributors. And we're going to have Volume 2 that's going to be coming out uh, early next month. So you can look for all of those on Amazon, as well as my, uh, my web store, which is brand new. It's a brushbeater.store. There's a lot of logo gear, t-shirts, patches, all, all the all the cool guy stuff that everybody asks for. It's all over there. Fantastic, sir. Hey, thanks for, for uh, coming on once again. God bless you, sir. Thank y'all. God bless y'all, too. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Pinelander Podcast. If you enjoy our unique content, please consider supporting our sponsors. Soft News providing special operations news from around the world. It's where Paul and I go to keep abreast of what's going on within the soft community. Check them out at soft.news. Blacksmith Publishing, been serving the warrior class since 2013. They have great titles written for warriors, by warriors. If you're looking for excellent reference material or just want to unwind with a great novel, be sure to check out the bookstore located at blacksmithpublishing.com. And if you're looking for some cool Pinelander apparel, head on over to the General Store located at PinelanderGeneralStore.com. That's all one word, PinelanderGeneralStore.com. Have a great selection of shirts, hats, jackets, sweaters, stickers, patches, artwork, and a whole lot more. Check out the store at PinelanderGeneralStore.com. If you're interested in helping develop our country's next generation of warriors, uh, please consider donating to the American Agogi Project. The mission of the project is to foster an environment producing able-bodied citizen warrior men of fine character. And we'll be officially launching the project in 2023 in celebration of uh, Blacksmith Publishing's 10th anniversary. Until our next meeting, stay mentally and tactically smart, physically and spiritually strong, and socially astute. To each other, we pledge our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. May God continue to bless Pineland.